Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Do you know the thing that's just struck me, Mark, is that we do all these podcasts and video casts and so forth, which are largely, now you may laugh, but they are largely for the entertainment of people out there. But there's a recent development. It's only just struck me that when we do these special birthday casts with people, Patreon supporters, who are, whose birthday it is, where we kind of eavesdrop on them, we shin down the digital drain pipe and they show us their records and they talk to us about their musical life and so forth. We flip to the model there because what they're effectively doing is they're entertaining us, aren't they, Mark? <laughs> and this is just a wonderful thing. It's only just recently struck me because we've been doing the mouse pad for about a year or something and they just get better and better, you know. They do. And we did one this week, which sadly you missed because you're away on work of national importance. And that was with Andrew Stocks, uh, who was um, in Lincolnshire, whose birthday it was. And Andrew particularly put a lot of work into it. And I just thought, these these the people are doing these fabulous little productions, all for our benefit. I know, I and know. that is so gratifying. And the thing you missed, you missed many, many things about Andrew's um, birthday celebration. The bit you would particularly have liked was when he was a classic Smash Hits reader back in the day, you know. Kind of cross between Adrian Mole and Neil Tennant, if you can imagine such a thing. Yes, completely. And yeah, he, yeah. he was this he, our era? Was he reading it when we were there? Uh, yeah, probably. Yes, toward yeah, maybe, and uh, towards the end of it, yeah. But he, he once say he was he was away at boarding school for a few years, and the housemaster was a little bit uh, frustrated by the fact that young Andrew didn't appear to be taking any interest in sports or cultural activities or any of the many options that the school offered for young people. Too busy gazing at pictures of Depeche Mode. Or no, he, <laughs> so he got him, got him in one day and said, what, what are you interested in, young Andrew, young stocks? He says, well, I'm interested in youth culture. <laughs> oh, my God, that's brilliant. Age what? How old was he? About 13 <laughs> or 14. I find youth culture fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just a, that's a classic Smash Hits reader. That it is. is. Somebody who's interested in youth culture at that kind of age. 
So anyway, yeah, they're birthdays. They're they people are doing them now for and they're getting better and better. They get the same format. I and mean, we should explain it's people going through their records and it's your uh, the, your early life story, isn't it? Mapped out in Tell via records and, and pop it down or whatever. So good and so it's fantastic. We really we really look forward to them. Uh but, to, to more of them. Anyway, go but, on. No, I was gonna say we've done some really good podcast recently the bob geldof one was fantastic have we talked about that i thought it was amazing people if people said it's a really good interview i said we didn't do any interview at all we just pretty much just turned him on and let we him point go him towards it. exactly i think i don't think we interrupted any point at all Hardly but it's so all. good it's, it's so incredible what struck me as phenomenal about that is that bob geldof has seen pop music from every possible angle hasn't he yeah as yep. a fan as a music journalist, because he was a music journalist working in, in Vancouver, as a rock star, as a TV producer, as a promoter. And so he has this incredibly close observation of everything he sees and he dismantles it and gets under the bonnet. He's and really sees how good. it works. And there's, oh, it's marvelous. The bit where he's, there he is growing up largely on his own. He's, you know, he's very sad. His mum had died when he was eight. His dad's off traveling as a, selling towels and traveling salesman. <laughs> his sisters aren't really there. And he's just alone, aged whatever he is, eight or nine, listening to Radio Luxembourg. And he described a couple of years and they said something like these thin, fizzing, crackling, golden threads dangled from Radio Luxembourg. Threads of possibility. And it's him listening to the Beatles and Stones and everything, you know, and, uh, and realising there was a whole world out there. And then he goes described uh, going to see the Beatles, the Stones and Dylan in what, 60, was it 64, 65, 63, 64? Yeah. It's fantastic. And his observation, each member of the Stones, he sees them individually, what they're wearing, you know, this was years ago. Their 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 look, their you know, their the, the way they carried themselves on stage. He notes that at that stage, Keith Richards was trying to be Paul McCartney and doing these little flips and little skips on stage, isn't he? Crowd yeah. waving at the crowd, crowd pleasing things, you know. And uh, I just thought that the 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 level of observation, what goes into being a rock star, the level of of, of the stagecraft that he absorbs, and then there's a bit where, where he talked about the, the formation of the Rats. Also, one of the best descriptions of what it's like to be on stage. Didn't absolutely. you think? Oh, absolutely! Electrifying the audience, you know, and getting that reaction and the heat and the sweat and the the tension. And I just thought it was amazing. Oh, it is really. ex absolutely extraordinary. And if you haven't heard it seen it do yeah do go and do that you might also catch up with we've actually contributed to somebody else's podcast a vodcast call it what you will in the in the last week which is jim irvin's jim irvin a former colleague of ours and a writer musician songwriter and uh he's been the previous guest of word in your attic hasn't he jim yeah and yeah. he, he's, he's, he's started really a, he started a podcast called you're not on the list when the idea is to just celebrate less celebrated LPs. Uh, and uh, you and I were on together because we always have to be on together because yeah, we're not, yeah, we're we're not, we're, we're, not a, we're not a whole person. Either <laughs> no, us. No, we're anyway. a pantomime horse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and uh, we both had to cho choose a record. I chose uh, Bobby Charles's first LP from Bearsville and you chose. I chose uh, Ace by Bob Weir, which I still um, think is a great record. Although I, yeah, listening to the Bobby Charles, I felt you had the advantage there. <laughs> still, I still stand by it. <laughs> I know, absolutely. And, uh, and Jim chose uh, Family Burlesque. Uh, in Bandstand? Bandstand. 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 Bandstand
which is really funny because I'd only been playing it about a week before for the first time probably in this century. Yeah. Uh, and uh, very much enjoyed that. But James, I thought it was really interesting chat. I'll tell you what, the one thing I just wanted to take up more with you, because I didn't stop on, uh, I didn't linger on it when we were doing the podcast, was uh, talking about the ambition of writers. Uh, and Jim, who works with a lot of, of younger writers nowadays, he's the kind of, I think I don't think you mind me saying is the classic old pro is brought in to work with the, oh, yeah, yeah. the young pop name signed to the label. Yeah, they, they um, co-write. They co-write, they co-write the songs. songs, and he says that they're all all very good, but but hardly anybody ever comes to him wanting to to do anything that really upsets the apple cart. Hardly any young writer nowadays turns up going, "No, I don't care how it's been done in the past. I'm going to do it in a really different way." You know, I'm going to. I'm going to come up with good vibrations for our times or yeah. whatever. What he finds is that there's considerable caution, you know, that people want to, they sort of want to fit in. And I thought that was interesting. And I suppose it's not surprising because presumably so many of them nowadays are the products of some kind of education system in how you make music. Whether it's stage school or stage the school. school performing arts, or I don't know yeah, what, yeah. they've been coached in this stuff. And they've so, been on a three-year songwriting course. They probably have analysed how Paul McCartney or Paul Simon or whoever yeah. writes songs, and they're very aware of that, probably more than earlier generations would have been. I just thought it was a really interesting observation. It is. And that's but don't you of- think, I think, I think it's something to do with the times too. I mean, I think, uh, uh, these aren't very buoyant times. During buoyant times, you're looking for entertainment and challenge, you know. Less buoyant times, you're just looking for things that are reassuring and Uh, comforting and familiar. And also, I think the consensus songwriting technique that tends to be used now makes it harder to be original too because you've got more and more people involved in writing the song. And so you've got to come to some kind of agreement about what it's largely going to be. And it's much more likely that it will be more conventional and more safe than if it was just one person, as it was in the 60s and 70s, some maverick on their own going, this is the song, everybody, to the producer and the musicians, let's do it, you know. Yeah, and also I think I I, I think also that the, the people in their their twenties or whatever they're not they're not as focused on the present as we were. We were totally focused on the present. That was the really interesting thing when, they were, when we were their age. And now they they've still got sixty years of other music to go back and discover. So they're not necessarily looking for the brand new different thing. They're still going back and looking at you know Joni Mitchell and finding Tom Waits or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I think all but- those things contribute. Well, that's Jim's podcast. Uh, you're not on the list, which you can find in usual places, but only after you've listened to this. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So today is the 20th of June. And the 20th of June, 1971, was the first proper Glastonbury, wasn't it? I think. It was proper Glastonbury, Glastonbury the year before. I think there was the one the year before with 1,500 people in a... You got a free pint of milk and T Rex and Steam Hammer and keep but it, Christmas. But it wasn't called. It wasn't called Glastonbury. It wasn't. I can't remember what it was called. It wasn't. Where the were the Varmavingans? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the first real Glastonbury was 1971. So exactly 50 years ago today. And, okay. So uh, can I just interrupt one for one second before we yeah. go any further? Because I know it's your specialist subject, and mm-hmm. yeah, therefore you probably you probably pass over one of the facets of Glastonbury that I still find utterly fascinating, and I think other Glastonbury virgins would similarly find utterly fascinating, which is the two most famous festivals in history. Neither of them took place at the place, at the place they said they did. 
That's Woodstock right. didn't happen at Woodstock. Didn't. And Glastonbury is nowhere near Glastonbury, is it? No, but I mean, no, it's just not the right ring, is it? Glastonbury on. has the right spiritual uh, I'm ambience. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's as much right to call it Glastonbury as I have to call the Palmer's Green Festival Glastonbury. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anyway, carry on. It's slightly nearer. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. No, but there's. A, I, I just was looking at this morning. There's bits of uh, the Nick Rogue uh, documentary which you can find on YouTube. Amazing, uh, Glastonbury Fair, and it was Bowie, wasn't it? And traffic and Fairport Convention and all sorts of people. And the thing that the person who struck me as being interesting was Terry Reid. Oh, Terry Reid is a story, isn't it? Oh, he's because there it is. It's on YouTube, and you can see Terry Reid and his band getting ready to perform. And it's the most kind of shambolic thing. And everyone's sitting around smoking joints. And eventually the drummer starts and the bass player plugs in. And they all, Terry Reid in the most extraordinary hat. I don't know how you describe his hat. It's not a Baker Boy hat, but it's one of those kind of things. And uh, Terry Reid, fabulous looking, 21 years old at the time. Kind of Lowell George kind of lookalike. I don't know how you describe his sound. What sort of music is that? Is that a kind, of, kind of rock soul that he's playing? I it? suppose so. I mean, that was part of his problem, that nobody could ever nobody describe knew. what he did, really. That became more and more interesting in his, in his story. You know, he was in this group, wasn't he, the Jaywalkers? Hey, he, he, was, he was kind of uh, you know, sent off on the road with PJ and the Jaywalkers at the age of about 15. Yeah, he would have been 15. Yeah. He, he was the young, good-looking guy with the, with the you know, band of uh, standard musos, you know. Anyway, yeah. go on. And then I think Peter Grant and Mickey Most got involved with him. And then he wrote songs that the Hollies and Crosby, Stills and Nash covered. And he had a song scheduled for Deja Vu and then dumped at the last minute. And then the key things were, of course, he was offered the job as the singer in the New Yardbirds, a.k.a. Led Zeppelin, and turned it down because he wanted to make his own music. Yeah, absolutely. In America. And later, very soon after, was offered the job, I think in Deep Purple, and turned that down too. And then finished, that was still looked really good. He was touring with the Stones and Cream in America, and I think he played at Mick Jagger and Bianca's wedding and stuff. But it, he just never quite connected, did he? No, he was all he, there he, on paper. I, I absolutely huge, fantastic talent, and if you you know if you can get those those classic records, River, which the tunes he's playing at um, on the Glastonbury thing that you're talking about, came out on River probably about three years later. You know that was part of his problem. Whatever he signed anywhere, he got caught up in corporate, you know, merry-go-rounds and people moved on and so forth. Um, so he's very unlucky. But also, he had no ambition whatsoever. No, I've, I've not. Married, met Terry Reid. He's a lovely guy, and uh, but clearly just not driven at all. No. Um, and uh, you know, th this is uh, encapsulated perfectly in the story of uh, when Jimmy Page rings him and says, I'm putting together this band, New Yardbirds, and so forth. How about you being the singer? And he goes, no, I'm not really interested. He says, well, I'll tell you what, there's a guy I saw recently who might be good for you in a local, in a band in the Midlands. I think he's called Robert Plant. And Jimmy Page said, is he good looking? And Terry Reid said, why does that matter? Yeah, what's that got to do? That's, that's right. That's where Terry Reid didn't understand. Yeah. Why it did matter, you know. And Terry Reid, he's very, he's, you know, just a, 
he goes his own way and has always gone yeah. his own way ever since. You know, how could you not be aware of that? That's extraordinary. No, you were talking about Bob Geldof earlier in that conversation with Bob Geldof. You were saying how his one of his eldest sister was obsessed with with Cliff Richard. And he said, "I could totally understand it because he was beautiful." Yeah. You know, he talks about Mick Jagger being beautiful. He talks about uh, David Bowie being beautiful and rail thin. You could see the light shining through him, you know. And but I think, I think uh, the very people... rarely do men acknowledge that uh, other very beautiful men kind of, in, you know, in the entertainment industry, you know, and, 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 and realise that's a key part of what it's all about. Yeah, but I, I mean, the difference is people, something like Bob Geldof is an entertainer. Yeah. Not a musician. Terry yeah. Reid is a musician. Musician. Absolutely to his boots. That's all he cares about is, is the sound yeah. he makes. It's all he's bothered about at all. He's not bothered about how much he gets paid for doing it half the time, you know, as long as he, he can just continue to do it. Then uh, in truth, he, he probably made the right decision. And me sitting here thinking, surely he missed all these fantastic opportunities. He's probably thinking, thank God I dodged a bullet. I, he, he wouldn't he, want, I, to, I, want I, to be I, Robert Plant. I have asked him about this. I interviewed him a few years ago. Um, when he was over here, and uh, he, he genuinely has no harbors, no bitterness whatsoever towards it. You know, he made his own choices, and he's not bitter about it at all. Uh, and he, he, you know, he's still still knocking around, mind you. Fair enough. Robert Plant also made the decision, and also is still knocking around and doing what he wants. Doing to do. very nicely, yeah, <laughs> exactly. very na- but also a very good compromise between what he wants to do and 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 what the market what will, people expect will sustain. Do. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but if you see, you can find, as you say, you can find that on YouTube. And it's Glastonbury Fair, F A Y R E, and this wonderful footage. Because those were the days when. There were so few people there that people could ride their motorbikes up to the stage, couldn't you? you yeah, you see kind doing... of Hell's Angels with kind of uh, half-dressed women on the back, kind of yeah. literally driving out, parking underneath the lip of the stage. And you see cracking Ford, the beer. Ford Anglias being parked, you know, within within range of the stage. You know, there's only relatively few people there because there are relatively few kind of hip people in yeah. those days. And, uh, and it wasn't an obviously star-studded bill, really. And uh, but Terry Reed, that he, he, as you say, you know, playing in the in the afternoon there, where uh, where uh, Linda Lewis joins them. Oh, that's she? a wonderful bit. Yeah, she, 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 she kind of shuffled because yeah, basically, but... absolutely, she said, "Who is this gorgeous guy singing yeah, like this?" I and have I'm to go, be I'm in go, his go, vicinity, being near him. And of course, uh, the the slide guitar in that band is David Lindley, who later oh, became. Yes. Massive, you know, massively popular with Jackson Brown and so forth. Yeah. And so it's such a, it, it, it's, if, if you were making a film about 1971, 72, and you wanted a soundtrack that nobody could quite identify, but that just sounded like. Sounds like it Perfect. Fits. Sounded like 1971, 72. That's the sound. It's the it Terry Reid at Glastonbury. And that bit of footage, the way it just very slowly comes together, when they start getting the groove. I think David Lindley is still kind of, I don't know, putting tape on his guitar or trying to, get the, trying to get the pickups to work or something. It's so kind of loose, you know. It's beautiful. Oh, no, it's amazing. And it, it's funny. I thought it, I, it connected for me with, we're, we're going to talk to Miles um, Copeland, former manager of the police and all sorts of other people next week, yeah. who's written a book called Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, which I was just reading over the weekend. And you've read it too, I think. And, and it's just interesting from a manager's point of view, what attracts him about the kind of people he wants to work with. And it's mostly about ambition. The people he works with, 
And, you know, Wishbone Ash and Climax Blues Band, Squeeze, the police, the cramps, the cramps who he absolutely hates and they detest him. Uh, REM, the Bangles, the Go-Go's, all the people, one thing they've got in common is they've got enormous ambition. Mm. And that's the attractive thing for any manager. You think, well, at least we're going to give it our best shot. Absolutely. At least they're going to try things. You know, Wishbone Ash, for years, (laughs) no success at all, living in abject poverty, are prepared to risk anything to to have some success. You know, the police too. I mean, at one point, I think he says, look, you're not getting anywhere. Why don't you, Sting and Stuart Cove, why don't you just go off to Europe and be the backing band of a girl called Cherry Vanilla? a kind of uh, a virtually unknown kind of a New York kind of groupie, really. And they go, fine, we'll do it. You know, and even when they're successful, he says, OK, why don't we tour Egypt? Why don't we tour India? Which I don't think anyone really done that stage. No, no. They go out and play, and they just go, terrific, you know, let's go for it. It's really interesting. You can see that about the police. I remember thinking this at the time, and, and, and his book really does kind of confirm this, that whatever the police did in their golden period, having their photograph taken, being on the television, making a video or whatever, they looked as if they were enjoying it. Yeah, it And that's such an important thing. They looked as if, no, we give it a go. We'll, we'll put whatever energy we've got, we'll put into this. We may be as tired as everybody else, but we don't let on, you know, at all. Yeah. And, and so few groups are like that. The other interesting thing is that, um, is that going through the book, is that... Um, he decides early on that uh, that he likes Jules Holland, and yes. he, he he becomes when Jules Holland leaves Squeeze, you know, he becomes his personal manager, and he, I think he still looks after him I to think this he's day, involved, one yeah, way yeah. or another. We're still involved, and he said the point about Jules was he was a glass half full person. Yeah, you know, whatever it was, yeah, we'll give it a go. Yeah, when he it's suggests fine. things to Chris uh, Diffin and to, to Glenn Tilbrook, they kind of they dig their heels in, don't they? <laughs> mule-like kind of uh, resistance to whatever he said. But Jules just goes, absolutely fine. Absolutely yeah, fine. yeah. And, uh, I, and I can well imagine if you're the manager of any stable of artists, those are the kind of people you want. You do. You, you, you like talent, but you, but you like positivity and energy probably almost more, actually. Yeah. You know, because you're, you're likely to get there if you've got the positivity and the energy. Com- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Completely. You know, to be in a position for your... Um, and the also, they're the kind of people through. who are going to listen to what the manager's suggesting and maybe take some of their ideas on board, you know. The other thing is, actually, the police are quite old, you know, at the time. You know, Stuart well, was 26 when they were hit. Stuart yeah. was 25. Andy Summers was 35. Yes. So they were probably thinking, I mean, Andy Summers, I can't remember, was he born in 42 or something like that? Andy Summers is probably thinking, this actually is my last my last shot oh, at the big time. And so I might as well just go along with what everyone wants to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was reading the bit yesterday about when um, when Sting's um, accountant took all his money. Have you read that bit? Yes, I have. Yeah, oh, it was about seven million pounds. Well, not all his money, but you know, quite because he gets an anonymous letter, doesn't he? I think saying, "By the way, I think this guy's." Um, I think uh, he's, he's taking your money. And Miles just goes, goes round to see him, and the bloke eventually just holds his hands up. And yes, says, yes, I am. Ah, yes, I am. I'm sorry, I've done a bad thing. There's no kind of you know having to track him down and squeeze you know, and kind of. It was a it was a far less serious version of the kind of Bernie Madoff thing, you know. That, yeah. that, that once you start robbing Peter to pay Paul, you've got to keep on doing it, haven't you? You know, yeah, what I mean? yeah. To to you got to find the money from somewhere, and Sting was the person that he found it yeah. from. But uh, I think he got it back, didn't he? Or he got a lot of it back. He got it all back from the from the bank, from Coops. Oh, that's right. To pay it all back, which Coops, I thought was absolutely Coops had allowed the wrong person to sign the check. I know. That's so they, they were held liable and they just had to right, reimburse right. him. Fantastic story. So he didn't lose anything. Yeah. But so, no, it really struck me as so interesting that he could have he could have um the the important thing is to have a manager who has some kind of strategic vision who, who's going to be listened to, you know. I can remember I can remember interviewing George Martin around the time of Pipes of Peace by Paul McCartney. McCartney had obviously spent years with managers who were called managers, but were effectively tour managers. Yeah. They were the people who just sorted out the itinerary and made sure everyone got a hotel room and got all the gear there. But they weren't strategic managers who said, what do I think we need to do is to think about where you're going to be and how you're going to be perceived in 10 years' time. George Martin said he got the uh, the demos, the, the, the tapes that, that McCartney had done for Pipes of Peace. And he said, he told him, he said, four of these songs are fantastic. We'll record them this afternoon. Uh, four need serious work. And I, I think some of the rest just should be abandoned. I think you should write some better songs. And he said, McCartney had obviously not been told anything like that for years. Because yeah, nobody yeah. could possibly, and that's what the book's full of. The book's full of the idea that most managers, most people in record companies just don't dare tell really established artists that their stuff isn't quite right. They haven't got the nerve, you know. So, uh, no, I thought it's, uh, there's so many good stories. There. I mean, it'd be fun to, it'd be really fun to talk to. I'm looking forward to it. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So, it's any other business. We were joined by Alex. Hello, Alex. Hello. Um, and uh, various questions have come in from the massive, uh, and uh, some excellent ones. And I have to start with this topical one from Paul Flynn, who says, "If the England football team were a band, which one would they be?" I think it. I think we we can guess. It's not the Beatles, is it? You know? It's not the Beatles. Currently, uh, it's possibly Happy Mondays, rickety and unreliable. <laughs> And, and nearly always destined to let you down. Oh right! Well, oh, I was, no, no. was going to go. I've got. I've got a perfect one actually. Go on. You, you probably remember them, uh, Mark, from the mid '80s. 
uh, Epic Records signed a group uh, that they spent a great deal of money on. I think were were um, managed oh, by Billy Billy Gaff, who was Rod Stewart's manager. They were the Roaring Boys. Roaring Boys. They were the Roaring new, Boys. They were Duran Duran meets Adam and the Ants. Yeah, That's they right. were. Huge they were all investment. promised. All promised. God, they look fabulous. They they're going to be great. And they died like a louse in a Russian's <laughs> beard. And and I think that that is my parallel with England England football team. It's all just wild. For the same reason, falls apart was it comes up against a proper football team. Alex, which was yours? Was it Shed Seven? Yeah, for exactly the same reason, I'd suggest they either Shed Seven or Razorlight. (laughs) Full of bluster and promise, but uh, failing to deliver, signifying nothing, etc. Now, somebody wants to know, and I have to see who. uh, Remind myself of what the name was who was asking this question. Whether six hours. Of the Beatles get back in the in the cinema is possibly delighting us slightly too much. What do you think, Mark? Tell us well, the story. No, of this. I don't. I mean, I, I that's great. I mean, yeah, Stephen it's Hope. Stephen Hope asked this: Would you okay. sit through six hours of Let It Be Get Back if it was shown in the cinema? He would. Would, I would. you? Yeah. I mean, I can remember then. See, do you remember when Martin Scorsese's George Harrison documentary came out, which I think is right. three hours forty six minutes, something like that. Three hours, three and a half hours. I can remember going to see that at a preview. Uh, with a mate of mine, and we had one and three quarter hours, and there was a little break, and you had a cup of tea and a bum, and a, or a glass of beer or something. And I can remember thinking, I have never been happier. You know, I've just had <laughs> one and three quarter hours of George Harris. I've got another one and three quarter hours to go. I can't wait. And I was thinking, if you extended that, the idea of a six-hour movie, and if you went to, you know, because we've all been to all-nighters, where you'd see three or four heart song movies in one go when you were 19 or something. God, did we really? I suppose we did. Oh, dear. But, I mean, six hours. If there was a break every two hours, I'd think so. And you stop and you have a Beatle-themed, um, yeah, you could have you'd have yellow submarine sandwiches. You know, you, I don't know. You could just make an event of it. Be good. Well, what do you think, Alex? Would you sit there six hours? hours of Titanic, I can definitely sit through six hours of Beatles. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. Uh, next question, David Wheeler. Says, would Oasis have been successful in any other decade but the 90s, which was a fellow period musically? Over to you, chaps. Go on. You know what I think. Well, that's that's fighting talk. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Well, well, if you parachuted Oasis into the early 70s, would they have been more popular than Slade or T-Rex or Mott the Hoople? Or uh, you see... Other- Okay, so I don't think Oasis was successful because music was going through a fallow period necessarily. Um, because musically, they really connected with me as as a teenager. Whether that says something about me or not, I don't know. But um, I found what they had to deliver was really powerful. But I think uh, I think it's more to do with the the political climate. Perhaps Oasis's message came through at precisely the right. And uh, what was the what was the message? It was a message. You, that, did you miss that, Dave? You missed the message. <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't want to know. God, it was basically. I mean, you know, um, Britain was a bit rubbish, wasn't it? And and they came along blustering. There is something to live for. Life can be better. There is, you know, all great pop music really is about escape, essentially, isn't it? That's why dance music does so well. All it's saying is, we live for the weekend. We're going to have a great time. Oasis would that that, that 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 was the bare bones of what they were saying. You know, we're going to have a great time. And that that was it, and that that you know that connected with people at the time. I think they really needed it. Um, okay, 
Maybe right. could they have happened at any other time? Because it took all so. the Beatles, all the Stones, and all of T Rex, and all of ABBA, and U2, and Crowded House, and all the other uh, song catalogues that Noel Gallagher told me in an interview that he had pilfered from. Blundered. It took all of those he plundered <laughs> and was made no bones about it. And I don't quite admire him for it, actually. I really do. But those are the things, those that was that was the, those were the building bricks. That was the toolkit that he needed to create Oasis. So the answer to that would be probably not. Okay. Um well what was this? Poppies from a tray says London Town, Paul McCartney's finest post-Beatles recording. Discussed. Now I, I have to I have to recuse myself from this discussion because I don't think I've ever heard it. Do you know I'm, it? I'm not familiar enough with it. And even if I was, it couldn't be better than Ram. It couldn't, Dave. Could uh, okay. Ram uh, is wall to wall. Class. Yeah, yeah, no, no, oh, the country, Monkbury Moon Delight. Oh Lord. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Poppies, um, following this, <laughs> I will do I will do what I frequently do in this in this day and age uh, when we're doing these you go off and listen to it i will go off and listen to it because i don't don't know it really at all uh somebody wants to know where's the magic in magic alex come from alex uh can you tell us or will mark tell us uh, I believe I th- that's over to Mark. I like to think it comes from a secret place. Well, it was. <laughs> I think it was my invention. I feel there was Magic Alex was the fantastic guru, uh, very briefly uh, brought on board when the Beatles started Apple. Was it, it was a kind of guy? A- Alex, just, Alex Mardas. Uh, uh, Alex Mardas, and they and he used to sit on top of filing cabinets, cross-legged, <laughs> coming up with gnomic pronouncements that they very for a brief period of time thought were really deep and meaningful, and they gave him a lot of money to build a new studio for them, to invent devices. Am I right? Yeah, None yeah. of which he delivered on. And uh, he was a complete failure, but they just, he was the kind of office hippie stroke guru. Absolutely. And, uh, so, but, but Alex, our Alex is a lot more than that. But Aww, we just, very capable. We, we just think very it's efficient. funny to call him Magic Alex. Magic Alex. Uh, Simon Brock says, is there a future for physical music in light of the massive rise of streaming? Could the CD make a comeback? Well, I think I've nailed my colours to the mast on this one, actually, Simon. I think there will be a comeback. I don't think it'll be huge. I don't think it'll be anything to bring it back to, you know, the early 90s when people were selling absolutely enormous quantities. But I think there is a need for a, for one standard physical format that people can resort to and say, I own this, I've got it. And I don't think vinyl is it because vinyl is just too expensive and too delicate, you know. It costs you 20, 25 pounds to go and go and get each if you want all the crowded house records or whatever. Whereas to go and get them on CD, you could probably afford it. And and they would, you know, they would probably last as long as anything. So I, I think there will be some kind of some kind of comeback. And I think it like vinyl, it will be massively overhyped by the so-called mainstream media who will pick on some set of figures to point out that it's all it's all come back dramatically it won't be dramatic at all but i think it will happen what do you chaps think i i tend to think that people love the idea of collections yeah. and uh, looking looking at what's behind you now it's like libraries you know we've got a big library of books downstairs and i kind of think this it's a big part of the household and the idea yeah. that you could just go and pull something out and listen to it there and then it's a physical object is very attractive and, and to have none of those things existing and none of them owned by you and none of them with your own, without any, with any personal memories about buying it and playing it and things, I think is a, you're missing out. So I would I would agree with you. So Ian Chambers, uh, Macca was 79 on Friday. 
Brian Wilson is 79 today as we're recording this. Compare and contrast. Do you still refer to him as thumbs aloft? Do, 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 do we? Everybody talks about McCartney as Macca nowadays, whereas they never did back in the day, did they really? No, they didn't. That was a kind of private joke amongst the Beatles, really. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, absolutely everybody knows who you're talking about. Because, you know, the, the kind of nicknames of, uh, of superstars have become familiar to everybody, haven't they? Like the Dame. All Dame those David. Things. All those things that were satirical originally. Nowadays, yeah. absolutely everybody, everybody knows. Brian Wilson and McCartney compare and contrast. Cool. Would anybody dare do that? Ooh. I, I mean, I would say, you know, Brian, Brian Wilson's genius is to be in a studio directing <laughs> records, you know, composing songs, directing performances very exactly. Paul McCartney's genius is is wider than that, I think. Much wider. Yeah, you know. And as a salesman, too. Uh, we, were, we were talking about Van Dyke Parks the other day because we'd recorded a Van Dyke Parks uh, podcast years ago, and he talked about working with Brian Wilson and said he was he was the Beatles and George Martin rolled into one. Just slight exaggeration, but, I mean, it, it, he was... He was the man who could play a, a recording studio like a musical instrument. He in could hear it hear in his quite. head, couldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Brian Wilson, that's the thing. He could say, yeah. it's going to be like that. And he, he'd then get the session, session men in who would make it like that. Yeah. It's different kind of different kind of skill. But, you know, isn't it extraordinary that they were both born the same weekend? I'd never realised this. Amazing. Two a days apart. Crack a weekend for humanity, that it's, was. It's, yeah, it was. It's, it's pretty good. So um, yeah, those are our um, those are our um, those are our questions from the massive. And thank you very much for those. My question to you is: Would you sit through the Bob Dylan streaming event that's coming oh. up on July the eighteenth? Bob Dylan, who's clearly missed touring more than most people because he's constantly on tour, is doing a thing. It's called Shadow Kingdom. I think tickets twenty five dollars. I've got a little press release here. It says Shadow Kingdom will showcase the artist in an intimate setting as he presents songs from his extensive renowned body of work created especially for this event. It is unclear whether this intimate setting will be located, where it will be located, whether or not the show will be pre-taped. So it might not even be live. But the thing is, would it be difficult to see Dylan live on your own? Because when you're with a crowd, there is that, it's like going to see a football match, there's that, that idea that you're all in it together. You're suffering to some extent. Absolutely. You're all exchanging that rolled-eyed look as to say, oh, my God, Maggie's full. <laughs> you know, oh, what is this the song? Idea. It's called singers we don't recognise. The, the ideal compromise. Back in the day, this is why I used to go to the pub to watch Spurs. Because if, they were, if it was all going to go terribly wrong, you were amongst people who shared your pain. Yeah, and we used you to. Went, it, it wasn't 80,000 people. It was, you know, 20 people in a pub. And that that it really made you feel better. So what they ought to do is you ought to go to the pub to watch Bob Dylan. That's true. With That's with a bunch of Dylan with fans. a big screen, and then you've got that idea that uh, you know it's all part of the rhythm of life, isn't it? Yes. It's football. You're expecting expecting him to lose, but he might just pull it out of the bag. But here's the problem with Bob Dylan and uh, and video and, and you know streaming and so forth is that the one thing that people really want to see with Bob Dylan is the one thing he denies them, which is a close look at his face. Yeah. Because he appears in shadow most of the time, doesn't he? Yeah. And his hat's pulled down there. Spookily lit from below. Yes. Yeah. Enigmatic. And, yeah. yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, if you get close enough, you, you'd want to be close enough. He wouldn't want you close enough at all, you know. But uh, is, it, is it better? How do you feel if it disappoints you? If a gig disappoints you, is it better 
that you've gone out to it or that you've stayed home for it, Alex? Which do you think is is better, you know? I would if say you've spent... gone out for it because you can at least justify the trip by doing something else that you like afterwards. Oh, okay. God, that's not the way I look at it. I think no, I could not. remember times coming out of Wembley Arena or whatever thinking, and now we've got the traffic jam yes. and the drizzly drive home. Oh, my <laughs> God, never again. This is never. it. This is it. Oh, coming out of Wembley after a kind of a really disappointing game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And knowing that you've got to be in that long That's the longest journey, to get it? into the tube. Yeah. <laughs> Dying to go for a pee and all those kind of things. You know. <laughs> oh, you think, this is misery. Why do we do this at all? Yeah. But I lived in Wembley for a bit, and one day um, I was walking through to get to the tube from my house, and there was a One Direction gig on, and I had to walk through... Wembley High Street, basically chock full of teenage One Direction fans, and it was the most terrifying experience I've ever enjoyed. <laughs> Just the, you, you could feel the pent up aggression there. You know, <laughs> it was it was a dangerous place to be, but I got out alive. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Experience. yeah. Well, you're rather what you would least like to encounter in Wembley High Street: a load of One Direction fans or a load of QPR fans or something like that. <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Any other business? Well, of course, we we're talking about Bob Dylan's doing his thing on the 18th, did you say, Mark? I think yeah, we're there. on the 17th, don't so we? So that's yeah. the day after he's just he's just coming in on our coattails. He is. He's well, we like, actually... possibly do it on the 17th because the... Because <laughs> we're the actually... will be absorbed by another... Yeah, we're, uh, our word in your park is on the 17th of July, a Saturday afternoon in... Holland Park, unaffected by any COVID restrictions and so forth, because this whole thing, the whole, the whole summer season opera, Holland Park, was planned with this in mind. So you've got a socially distanced, covered auditorium, ventilated at the sides, and, uh, you know, you don't have to be too on top of people or anything like that. And we're delighted to announce that Danny Baker has been added to the bill of our... Uh, are uh, strong talkers. Oh, Google that. <laughs> yes. So we've got we got Danny, we've got Leslie Ann Jones, we've got Barney, Barney Hoskins, Hoskins, and we've got Gary Crowley, if we can only winkle a word out of him, you know, because he may be on one of his, uh, you know, one of his quieter days. Shy retiring days. Shy retiring days. So uh, those four and us and who knows what else. And, uh, and it'll be lovely to see you. And so get your tickets if you haven't already done so. Where do people go for your tickets, Alex? Uh, I'll put a ticket link in the, in the show notes, but there's also a handy widget on wiyelondon.com. A handy widget. And there's some new patrons, I think, at Magic, are there? Absolutely are. We have. We welcome. Go on. Les Cliché. Les Cliché. Les Cliché. Les. How are we spelling that? That's a great name. L-E space. Cliché. Yeah. Le cliché. I thought, yeah, it's, uh, I thought it was Les. I thought it was Les, Les clichés. <laughs> That's fantastic. Le cliché. Welcome aboard. Very good. I pronounce everything slightly wrong. So, all right. Okay. okay. Um, John Dennison. Good John man. De- Hello, John. Very nice to have him. No, it's not a very funny name, John, but you know, it's nice <laughs> to have you. <laughs> Could have made an effort. Must do better. Uh, <laughs> Mark, Do- Mark Doherty. Mark good. Doherty. Splendid. Yes. Hello, Mark. Darren Pierce. Hello, Darren. Welcome aboard. Lovely to have you. Sal Mamuji. Sal Mamuji. I hope all of you will be taking part in the Friday night quiz. Joining us for the Friday night. The weekend starts here at six o'clock. A little bit of a quiz. 
little bit of a ban- little bit of banter. And next week, a prize giving, which Mark can tell us about in a moment. I don't know if he's got it nearby. I have anybody, got it here. Any, anybody else to add, Alex? I do Michael Sketch and Thomas Becker. Michael uh, Sketch Very and Tom, good. Welcome Thomas aboard. Beckett. <laughs> nice to have you all aboard. And so, Mark, tell us. Tell I can people. reveal that the prize, and here it is. There you go. Because I was taken to France on uh, exciting business <laughs> last week, and on the way back, bought this not actual life-size model of the Eiffel Tower, which, which is were... going to be the prize for this this this, this uh, edition's winner. Yeah, series winner. Yeah, well, that'll so, be presented next Friday. Yeah. It's a particular thrill for any fans of uh, of the Lavender Hill mob, the great Stanley Holloway, absolutely uh, Alec Guinness, Eileen film. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, that's something to do on a rainy afternoon. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.